On today's episode of Gatsy Talks Tintin, Urge has a meeting with a young Chinese artist who will influence his life and the adventures of Tintin series forever in Gatsy Talks Tintin, The Blue Lotus. Tintin and Snowy are in India, guests of the Maharaja of Gai Pajama, enjoying a well-earned rest. The evil gang of international drug smugglers, encountered in Cigars of the Pharaoh, have been smashed and its members are behind bars, with one exception. Only the mysterious leader of the gang is unaccounted for, having disappeared over the edge of a cliff. But questions still have to be answered. What of the terrible Rajaja juice, the poison of madness? Where were the shipments of opium going, hidden in the false cigars? And who really was the mastermind behind the operation? Relaxing in India, Tintin and Snowy are visited by a Chinese messenger who is instantly struck by Rajaja juice, the poison of madness, and is only able to mention the word Shanghai and the name Mitsuhuratu. After arriving in Shanghai and witnessing the vulgar racism on display from the European elite, Tintin meets the respectable Japanese Mitsuhuratu, who tells him that the message was actually to stay in India and protect the Maharaja imploring Tintin to return immediately and warning him that his life is in danger. Sure enough, multiple attempts are made on Tintin's life, being saved only by a mysterious Chinese man each time. Before he can leave, he also crosses paths with a man named Dawson, the corrupt chief of police in the Shanghai International Settlement. Aboard the ship back to India, Tintin and Snowy are kidnapped and revived in the headquarters of the Sons of the Dragon, a secret society dedicated to the destruction of the opium trade. The society is headed by the Honourable Wang Chen Yi, whose son was the one protecting Tintin, though now he too has succumbed to the poison of madness. Wang explains that Mitsuhuratu is actually a Japanese spy, who works to distribute opium all over the world, and they request that Tintin stay in China to help defeat him. Deciphering a coded radio message, Tintin goes to the Blue Lotus Opium Den and follows Mitsuhuratu as he and his men sabotage a small section of railway in the Chinese countryside. The act is blamed on Chinese gangsters and provides the Japanese government with a convenient pretense to send in soldiers to occupy the region. Tintin is captured while witnessing this act of terrorism and is injected with the madness poisoned by Mitsuhuratu, who gleefully releases the boy reporter after he succumbs to its effects. But it's all an act. Mitsuhuratu realizes too late that the poison was actually replaced with harmless water by the Sons of the Dragon, and Tintin remains completely sane. Determined to get a sample of the poison analyzed in Shanghai, Tintin poses as a Japanese general to sneak through the international settlement. Meeting with his old ally, the film tycoon Roberto Rostopoulos, he learns that Professor Fang Si Yang, renowned expert on insanity, has been kidnapped. But before he can find him, he is arrested by the corrupt Dawson and handed over to the Japanese military, who condemn him to death on falsified charges. However, the Sons of the Dragon are able to rescue him once more. On the trail of Professor Fang, the only man who can find a cure for the poison of madness, Tintin rescues a young orphan named Chang from a flooded river, and the pair quickly bond over the bigoted beliefs held by their respective cultures. Meanwhile, Mitsuharatu and Dawson conspire to frame Tintin for the professor's kidnapping. Detectives Thompson and Thompson are reluctantly sent to arrest their friend, without much luck. 
After being discovered hiding in a barrel of opium, Tintin is taken to meet the head of the smuggling ring, none other than the film tycoon Roberto Rostopopoulos himself, who survived the fall over the cliff at the end of the previous adventure. Before he can execute Tintin and Wang, Chang and the rest of the Sons of the Dragon emerge from the other opium barrels as well, arresting the leaders once and for all. Documents seized from Mitsuharatu's home reveal the Japanese role in the railway sabotage, causing the Japanese military to withdraw from the region, though they resign from the League of Nations in protest. Thompson and Thompson apologise for having to pursue Tintin, again. Professor Fang develops a cure for the Poison of Madness, and Mitsuharatu reportedly commits Harry Kari, though mercifully this isn't shown in the album. The story ends with Chang being adopted by the Wang family, and Tintin bearing his dear friend a tearful farewell as he departs China. Discussing his career, Hergé would later reflect that Tintin was a game for me, until the Blue Lotus. Originally serialised between the 9th of August 1934 and the 17th of October 1935, the second half of Tintin's adventures in the Orient is often credited with the establishing the mould that all future Tintin adventures would fill. In the words of Tintinologist Michael Farr, if not Hergé's only masterpiece, certainly his first masterpiece. This final chapter in Hergé's creative transformation was the product of an innocuous encounter in March of 1934. Among Tintin enthusiasts, this story has become scripture. Understanding that Hergé planned to send Tintin to China after the events of Cigars of the Pharaoh, one Father Gosset, chaplain to a group of Chinese students at Levain University, wrote to the cartoonist and implored him to, quote, do a little research, end quote, and avoid stereotyping the Chinese as he did with other minority groups, most egregiously the native Congolese in Tintin in the Congo. Even the Native Americans, while presented sympathetically and with a culturally accurate aesthetic in Tintin in America, are still inseparable from the tomahawks and teepees of popular imagination. It's unknown if Father Gassay knew that, in the land of the Soviets, Tintin encounters a pair of sadistic pigtailed Asian men entrusted with torturing him, while a now removed segment of Tintin in America shows a different pair of, quote, Orientals who plan to kill Tintin and eat Snowy. Given Urge's increased interest in cultural accuracy, demonstrated by his research into the Native American tribes in Tintin America, and the detailed Egyptian tombs in Cigars of the Pharaoh, it isn't surprising that Urge happily took up Father Gassay's offer to meet up with a young Chinese student that was learning at the Brussels Palace of Fine Arts. His name was Chang Chongzhen. Said Urge in 1977, I think Chang was, without knowing it, one of the artists who had the most influence on me. It was he who made me aware of the absolute necessity of being well informed about a country and of constructing a narrative. The pair would meet weekly for several months, with Chang educating Hergé on traditional Chinese artistic style and contemporary Chinese politics, both of which influenced the Blue Lotus greatly. On political matters, Hergé had traditionally deferred to his mentor and editor of Le Vetium Cicle, Norbert Vallès, whose conservative nationalist ideology is practically transcribed into cartoon form in the first three albums of the Tintin series. However, after a public feud with the Belgian Director of Public Work over the construction of the Canal Albert, the bombastic editor was quietly asked to resign from his editorial position by the church hierarchy, which held considerable sway over the associated Catholic press. It was a quiet end to Hergé's partnership with a man who he would always concede he owed everything to. But as demonstrated by the development of his craft, as displayed in Cigars of the Pharaohs, the Tintin series had outgrown the need for Vala's direction. Additionally, even if Hergé's professional life was no longer influenced by Velez, his personal life would continue to be. The priest had arranged his marriage to Germaine Kuykens in 1932, and Hergé would later admit that his wife and himself often found themselves in competition to meet the lofty moral absolutism set by the strident 
energetic priest, Urge later conceding he was doomed to lose that contest. After Velez's departure, Urge would continue his work on Le Petit Vetiem, the children's supplement of Le Vetiem Cicle, but strictly as a cartoonist, foregoing almost all editorial responsibility so that he could focus on Tintin's adventures, and those of Quick and Flupke, a less regarded but endlessly charming comic creation of his. Removing himself from editorial responsibility was a fortuitous decision in retrospect. The flames of fascism were blazing terribly across the border in Germany, and the editorial staff of both Levitium and its supplement worked eagerly to fan them on. It would be an oversimplification to characterise the Catholic press as outrightedly fascist. The Belgian church hierarchy officially condemned the nation's fascist, Rexist political party in favour of the traditional centre-right Catholic party, but it shared with the fascist movement a strident ideology of anti-communism, anti-liberalism, and increasingly, anti-Semitism. Questions regarding Urge's reputation as a perceived Nazi collaborator linger to this day, and it's possible he would have been jailed after liberation if his name had been attached to the vengeful diatribes extolled in his paper. Yes, it was a fortuitous decision, but it was not an ideological one. Urge had very little interest in national or international politics, besides what he interpreted as a struggle between oppressed and oppressor everywhere and in all forms. As such, less time overseeing the editorial direction of the supplement simply meant, for Urge, more time to craft Tintin's latest adventure. As such, the ideological guidance that would have once been provided by Velez was instead provided by Chang, who understood firsthand the injustice of the Japanese aggression against his native China, and the corruption of the Shanghai International Settlement. Urge had never been to China, but for once, he wasn't relying on secondhand information to inform Tintin's travels. The sabotage of the Chinese railway is a thinly veiled reference to the real-life Mudkin incident in 1931, which provided the Japanese government with a pretense to occupy Manchuria in northern China. The subsequent exposure of this scheme did indeed lead Japan to withdrawing from the League of Nations in 1933. While the depiction of the Japanese government's actions as duplicitous and aggressive would be vindicated after the Second World War, the story appeared at a time in which the Western press was largely sympathetic to the Japanese, whose colonial mission was broadly supported by the allied United Kingdom and France. As Pierre Asselini notes, it was the first time Urge had taken sides in an international conflict, and he had sided against a nominal ally of his nation. It didn't escape attention at the time. General Raoul Pontus of the Sino-Belgian Friendship Association registered an official complaint from the Japanese government over Urge's depiction of Japanese aggression. Chang commented at the time, If the Japanese are angry, it's because we are telling the truth. Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek, contrastingly, was so impressed that he invited Urge to visit the country. The cartoonist regrettably had to decline due to his work commitments, though he finally visited the leader's widow in her Taiwanese exile in 1973. Chang's influence wasn't really on the messaging of the story, but its aesthetics as well. Even in its original black and white form, the attention to detail is stunning, with panels of Chinese streets showing accurate contemporary advertising material and slogans and signs written in perfect Chinese. Chang's contributions are so great that his initials are actually blended into the background of scenes in two separate panels. Actually, Urge wanted to credit Chang as co-author, but Chang declined out of humility and fear of political consequences. Whereas the Arabian Peninsula and India of the preceding story are idealised and fanciful, if not entirely fictitious, The Blue Lotus presents a meticulously researched world with accurate script setting a mountainous standard of attention to detail to which Urge would always hold his future stories. 
Hergé doesn't merely challenge prevailing political attitudes, but also social perceptions held by many in the West, including, not so long ago, himself. The loathsome character Gibbons, who extols the virtue of spreading Western values while beating a downtrodden Chinese servant, is a timeless satirization of the kinds of cultural chauvinists that Hergé looked to when researching Tintin in the Congo. Even more poignant is Tintin sharing a laugh with Chang, the fictionalized Chang, not the real Chang, over cultural stereotypes. Tintin explains that all white people aren't evil, despite what Chang's grandfather had told him, before mirthfully explaining that many white people in Europe hold perceptions of the Chinese as barbarians, perceptions Hergé himself had presented in earlier stories. That doesn't mean it's without criticism, and Hergé's yellow-skinned, buck-toothed Japanese caricatures clash uncomfortably with the progressive depiction of the Chinese. Even so, as Dominique Maric argues, Within the Blue Lotus, Hergé offers one of the most beautiful arguments on tolerance in the history of comics. While Harry Thompson argues that the specific setting of the Shanghai International Settlement isn't as timeless as many settings in Tintin's adventures, the lessons contained most certainly are. In terms of plot, the Blue Lotus builds upon the precedent set by Tintin in America and Cigars of the Pharaoh, marking a welcome termination to the era of ad hoc stories pieced together week by week that define the narrative of Hergé's earlier stories. Though admittedly, there are periods of Tintin and Snowy running back and forth between set pieces, with little action in between. Gone to are the sight gags Tintin would utilise earlier in his adventures to escape peril. Jean-Marc and Randy Loffisser note that, in the Blue Lotus, the need to be accurate and truthful overrides the desire to spin a good yarn. Harry Thompson argues that Hergé had not quite finalised Tintin's shape by this stage, and he does still appear more rounded and hunched than he would become. Detectives Thompson and Thompson, on the other hand, have dropped any semblance of competence from their previous adventure, and have found their role in the series as bumbling, righteous, clownish do-gooders. Chang, the fictionalised Chang again, provides a compassionate and empathetic friend for Tintin, but he would not become a series regular, appearing only once more as the central character in 1958's Tintin in Tibet. It was a fictional absence that mirrored reality. Sadly, Hergé lost contact with Chang once the latter returned to China in 1936, and Hergé would spend many, many years after the Second World War, trying to re-establish contact with the friend who had influenced his work so much. Tintin heads know how the story ends, but it's for another time. Tintin in the Orient, as it was originally dubbed, finished its serialization in November 1934, with an album version published by Casterman the same year as The Blue Lotus. Hergé would revise the story and colorize it in 1946, with only a few innocuous changes. For the first time, the actual art style between the original and the revised editions are almost identical except for the colours, suggesting again that Hergé believed he may have almost perfected his craft by 1934. Hergé later said that it was the time of the Blue Lotus that I discovered a new world. Now, the world he was referring to was China, but his words applied perfectly to the new creative standard he had set with his work. From the Blue Lotus onwards, there would be no more drawing on imagination or second-hand sources for information, no more haphazard gag-heavy plot progression, and no more guiding political philosophy besides standing with the oppressed against the oppressor. He had hit his stride just in time. There were, of course, no shortage of oppressors on the move, and Tintin would have his work cut out for him. Previously on this show, I've tried to do episodes where I get people to talk about their opinions of the story in question. I haven't done it for Blue Lotus because I don't think there's much you can say about Blue Lotus that hasn't been said before. It is probably the most, uh, if not the most scrutinized Tintin story, or most celebrated Tintin story, or most researched Tintin story. It's certainly one of the most but I will reiterate just some of the reasons why that is. First of all, beautiful art style. 
And, you know, of course, in the 1946, it's in colour and it's beautiful. But as I said in the review, even in the original 1935 edition, the details are all there. It's such a pleasure to watch and just the attention to detail in the background in the scenes is is phenomenal and we know why that is it's because of the the research that has gone into it and you know that's something that Urge is always uh, credited with especially from Blue Lotus onward this attention to detail in you know the 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 countries he's creating the costumes the scenery the vehicles the aircraft everything they had such an extensive catalog and i think the start of that is really in blue lotus now that's not to say he didn't do any research for his four preceding stories he certainly did but it's never been quite as accurate as it is in blue lotus on top of it you just got this message that is just quite firmly and quite uh, unashamedly no tolerance. This friendship with Tintin and Chang, that was a reflection of Hergé and the real Chang in real life. And it just serves to, I think, you know, it doesn't excuse the depictions in Tintin the Congo, for example, but it really does, I guess, demonstrate how much his thinking has changed. And that's that's down to two reasons, I think. One, that he had moved away from Valais his editor as a as a guiding force in his stories and the other that he had met Chang and he had previously at least in his stories presented Chinese people as you know barbarians savages they like to torture people they like to they wear pigtails and they like to eat dogs and he met this incredibly talented incredibly thoughtful incredible insightful incredibly humble artist and became such good friends with him so Tintin's attitudes in the Blue Lotus are definitely a reflection of Urge's changing attitudes. And that tolerance, I think, would stay with Urge for the rest of the series. You know, there are, there are still some very questionable depictions later in the series. There are some uh, characters that seem to embody some pretty negative stereotypes, and we'll, we will be dealing with those as we get to them. But generally, I, 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 think, I think people who make those accusations of, uh, of racism against Urge sort of forget the the sort of message in this book. Now, of course, it is undone by the, the, the depiction of the Japanese, not in terms of how they actually act. Again, I think I think most of Urge's accusations of militarism were vindicated after the Second World War, at least in the popular Western imagination. But the actual depiction of, like, Mitsuharatu with his buck teeth and his yellow skin and his squinty eyes, it, it, it looks like something you'd see in a propaganda poster. So, you know, it is two steps forward, one step back in that case. The other reason the story is so well-remembered is because of, of its connection with, with Chang, the real-life Chang, and we touched on that, Urge's relationship with Chang. Just the, the, the way it influenced him. And there is such a... Such an interesting story behind their friendship. And unfortunately, because we are progressing as we go through the Tintin books, I can't sort of give the whole thing away because I'm sure many Tintin fans will know it does sort of play out and it does reflect in later books and in, in, in real life as well. So at this stage, we'll just say he had made a friend that influenced the direction of the Tintin series enormously. For me, I never loved Blue Lotus, but I'm a bit weird. I have quite specific taste when it comes to Tintin books that I love. I have very, very sort of, um, very specific taste about the ones that I put in my top five. And maybe I'll get to those and explain why that is when I, when I get to them. But I can certainly see the merit of the Blue Lotus. You know, it may not have been one of the ones I kept going back to and reading all the time, but, um, but I, 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 I totally see why it's lauded so much as it is, especially having read the four preceding ones. And, you know, it's been really, really rewarding to slowly just see how, how much better they get up to this point. And I think, I think he's on the plateau right now. I think, you know, some people will always have their personal preferences, their personal favorites, 
they'll like some more than others. And I really am interested in getting to that. But I think from a, a literary standpoint, in terms of, oh, I guess, the legacy and the, the quality, regardless of personal taste, Blue Lotus is sort of, it's sort of at that peak. And that peak would just flatten out and stay consistently fantastic for the rest of the series. And that is why I've decided to make Tintin and the Blue Lotus my final review for the first season of Gatsby Talks Tintin. Now, there will be a special bonus episode next week, not based on a book, but to do with Tintin. So you can look forward to that. But I thought it was a very logical termination point. Urge had climbed the creative mountain and he was at the peak now. So I thought that was a good place to stop. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, Tintin Heads. I hope you've learned something and I hope you've hope you've, you know, given a chance to uh to reconnect with the series. Or if it's your first time, I hope you've, you know, been inspired to pick it up. I would encourage you to follow me on Instagram at Tintin.podcast. Please make sure it's Tintin.podcast and not Tintin Podcast, because Tintin Podcast without the dot is not an English language Tintin Podcast, but it is a Tintin Podcast. So Tintin.podcast on Instagram. Also check out latterature.com, www.l-a-t-t-e-r-a-t-u-r-e.com slash Tintin for a look at some of the behind the scenes research. But until next week, I hope to see you all very soon. Hope you're staying very safe. And thank you for listening, Tintin Heads. I'll see you very shortly.